reading Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, gracious Father, we do thank you that your name is majestic. We praise you, Lord, that you have made the heavens and the earth and you have given humanity the proper ability to steward it and to utilize what you have given, utilize what you have made. And we ask, God, that you would teach us this morning, as we saw there in Psalm 8 and as we open up to Genesis 1 and 2, that you would teach us what it is you think of us. I love that question. When I consider the work of your hands, the moon and the stars, the sky, and all that you have put in place, what is mankind that you're even mindful of us? And yet you are. And so we ask God that today as we enter into the scriptures, you would teach us what your word says about us, and you would uh, challenge us where appropriate, and you would comfort us where needed. We give ourselves to you. We thank you for every person here. Thank you that you've brought us here safely. It's our desire to worship you now in spirit and in truth. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. So good to be with you today. My name's Adrian, and if we haven't met, I'd love to connect with you after the service. If you're a newcomer here, we extend a special welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us for worship today. Uh, we initially had scheduled a lunch on us gathering for right after this service. We're not going to do that today, given the change in weather. We want you to get home safely as soon as we're done here with the service. But we will do lunch on us next Sunday. So if you've signed up for that and you still plan to come, we'll have plenty of food for you. If you didn't know this was coming, this is an opportunity for newcomers to meet our pastoral staff and a couple of our other ministry leaders and learn a bit more about what we're doing here at Carney E. Free. Have a great meal and meet some other newcomers to the church as well. We'd love for you to join us for that next Sunday after our worship service. I wonder if you were to take a stroll down UNK. You're to go through the beautiful grounds there at our local university and you're to stop people that you saw on the sidewalk and ask them the question, what does it mean to be a human? I'd imagine you get a variety of responses. That might be a little bit awkward to do that, but you'd probably get a variety of responses. You ever seen those man on the street videos that they do sometimes? Those can be fun where you hear someone ask this philosophical question 
And if we were to ask this philosophical question, what does it mean to be a man or woman? What does it mean to be human? What is the essence of humanity? I bet you'd get a variety of different responses. For sure, we'd hear from some who would say, well, to be a human is, is nothing more than, than to be a more evolved animal. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing special in humanity at all. Perhaps there would be others, and there's a growing groundswell of people out of some universities who would suggest that all we are is our DNA, and we're functionally and fatalistically determined by our DNA, that there's nothing to this myth of free will or love or soul or any of that. One very well-known uh, atheist biologist by the name of Richard Dawkins waxes philosophical when he says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any purpose. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Because DNA neither knows nor cares, DNA just is, and we dance to its music. He writes, quite a statement of humanity, quite depressing, I might add. Perhaps we'll always meet some others who were taught by one who was a, a follower of Sigmund Freud, and they tell you to be human is just to be a sexual being. Humanity is, in essence, acting on sexuality or repressing sexuality and nothing more, nothing less. Again, depressing, if that's it. Now, others still you might run into, and if they've been trained in the New Age movement, though, they would say, no, to be a human is to be divine. And the only problem with humanity is we have amnesia. We've somehow forgotten that we are divine, and we need only look within and see that we are divine. You ever heard that? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, just a few. Apparently, this is not Boulder, Colorado. Okay, everyone would have heard it there where I came from. That's kind of a derivative of Hinduism and Buddhism and the New Age movement. But I tell you what, if I look within and I am divine, then the divine is really messed up. Anyone else? Okay, I hope you say amen about yourself. Not about, okay. Okay. Now, the divine is really messed up if you look within and it's that. Like, how small? Now, eventually we'd probably run into a few Christians on campus, and, and perhaps in asking them this question, what does it mean to be a human, perhaps they would look at the fall of humanity, of humanity, which we talked about last week, and they'd say, to be a human is to follow our original ancestors and to be marked by sin. In essence, it is to be a sinner. You heard that? To be a human is to be a sinner. And that's part of the story, but as I am want to say in here, that if we are followers of Christ, we're both sinners and, and saints at yet the same time. And as well, even before the fall into sin, and our respective fall into sin, even before we sinned and fell short of the glory of God, God makes us in his image and in his likeness. And I want to talk with you about that this morning. Because the image of what a human is has been so utterly debased by our culture as a whole and by the church as well that I think we need to take a, a week here in this series, God's story, our story, to understand 
what God has to say about us when he initially made us. So open with me in your Bible to Genesis 1, starting at verse 26, if you would. If you want to pull out your phone or your Bible or you want to just read along on the screen, that's fine. But we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2, a number of different passages here. It speaks to who we are in our original creation. Listen now. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them both completely equally before God. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So frequently in our conception of a Christian worldview, we tend to begin, and in our statement of what the gospel truth is, we tend to begin with, what has gone wrong? Have you noticed? We start so often with the bad news. And I understand that. You have to get to the bad news, but before you get to the good news of what Jesus did on the cross. And the bad news, of course, is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is righteous. No, not even one. But even before we get to that bad news, what is Genesis 1, 26 through 31 saying about the good news related to how God made you? It's this, that out of love, he chose to form you and me and every person that we meet in his unique image and likeness. That's the beginning. God loves you, and so he created you. Now, to be sure, some of that unique image and likeness has been defaced by humanity's fall into sin. And we talked about this last week to a great degree, that humans live outside of boundaries, and when the original ancestors lived outside of uh, of boundaries, it led to shame and guilt and hiding and the blame game. Remember that? Okay, and and it still does the same thing for for us today. But but we got to say that even in spite of that, the Bible notes repeatedly in Genesis 1, in Genesis 5, in Genesis 9, in James 3, 9 and 10, and in other places as well, that even after the fall, every single person that you and I make, that you and I meet, is loved by God and made in this image and likeness of God. Now, what is that? What is this image and likeness that we read about there first in Genesis 1:26? I'd like to suggest the three things. First, the image of God is the essence. It's the soul of what it means to be a human. It's the starting point. It's the essence of who we are. Now, of course, Eden has been lost, 
And only Christ can fully restore it, and only Christ can fully restore us. But there's still something beautiful in us that mirrors God, which remains. Well, what do you think it is? What, what would you say? Let's do a little audience participation. That distinguishes us from cats and dogs. Don't whisper it. you got to shout it for me to hear it. What's that? Able to choose. The able to choose. Thank you, Brad. Wonderful. What else? An, able, an ability to think. Say, will I go this way or will I go that way? What else? Compassion. A unique ability to be compassionate in a different way. Yeah. How about moral code? Do we have a moral code that perhaps the animals do not have? We have an ability to think about, should I do this or should I do that? We have this moral code, a conscience within us that says, no, you've acted the wrong way yesterday, Adrian. You need to go apologize for that. Animals can't do that. They operate on the basis of instinct. We have these qualities that are unique in us to all of the rest of God's creation. We can even think about, should I do this? Should I have a chocolate donut this morning? Oh, no, I had that yesterday. I think today I'll have a powder donut today. You know, dogs just see food, and they eat food, right? Okay, so we're unique in all these ways as compared to the rest of God's creation. It's really interesting. No matter where you go across all generations and all cultures, you will see that there's a moral code that exists. There's a standard of right and wrong. It may not be identical across cultures, but there are some amazing similarities across cultures with respect to loving one's family, for example. The virtue of courage and the ugliness of cowardice. I, I mean, there's, there's certain qualities across every culture that are uniform. How could that be other than God impressing those on each and every person that he makes in his likeness. These are not the kinds of things that come from random mutation and natural selection. Do you see? Uh, likewise, across every culture, still today in our post-enlightenment age, post-modern age, where fewer and fewer Americans, fewer and fewer Europeans go to church today than any time in many generations, still in the West, people believe in God to the tune of 90%. In many other areas of the world, it's much, much higher even than that. Why is it that we have this longing for spiritual things, this longing to be able to relate to God, even in our post-enlightenment age? Because that is part of the image and likeness that God has impressed on us when he made us, that we long to be connected to our creator, that we look at the moon and the stars that he has put into place, that we look at the conscience, the moral code, and we say that cannot be by accident. Who put it there? Ecclesiastes 3.10. God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women such that we long for him. Now, to be clear, I, I believe the image of God, the likeness of God, is way bigger than your functional ability or even your rational ability to decide, should I do this or should I do that? It includes that, but the image of God is also, uh, it, it's this, this essence, this soul that says, regardless of any functional value you have to other people, you're valuable to God. By which we would say, your grandfather... My grandmother, living in an Alzheimer's unit, 
has every bit the image and likeness of God still impressed upon her as you and I do. Such that we would say a baby in her mother's womb, a baby that's just been born, someone with severe disabilities who doesn't have much practical purpose to the culture at large, is every bit as made as in the image and likeness of God as you and me because what God has done when he made us on his final epic of creation is say, oh, you're so valuable. Regardless of what any person says about you, regardless of what the culture says about you, regardless of what you think about yourself, you're so valuable to God because you're made to be a mirror of his character, made in his image and his likeness. This is the essence, my friends, of what we are. Now, moving on, as image bearers, we do get to represent God as we work. We have this unique responsibility in the world that we get to be God's co-regents in the world. And we just read about that here in Genesis 1, and it goes on to Genesis 2, that, that when we work, well, when the original couple well, were, were, were created, they, they were told, you get to reign over all of this that, that I made. That's work, right? So let me ask this question. Is your work a blessing or a curse? Depends on the day, right? <laughs> Depends on the job. Depends on the boss. Yeah, okay. I mean, we all feel that way. But in its original purpose, your work is a good thing. It's a blessing that was given to us by God. Now, after the fall, there's certainly far more thorns and thistles and nasty bosses. But it's a gift that's been given to us by our creator that we get to be his co-regents as it were. He created initially. He is the sovereign over it, but then he makes us in his image to continue working, to, de to continue developing the world, continue to uh, honor him and represent him as we work. Work in itself is still good. Look at Genesis 2.15. This is all before the fall. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Sound like work, doesn't it? To work it, take care of the, I mean, he's a farmer. And then he's responsible to name all the animals and take care of many of the animals. Perhaps he's like a biologist of some kind at this moment as well. Before human failure and arrogance and envy messes things up, work was good. And Adam and Eve are given this responsibility to be like vice presidents, if you will. That it's their job to tend to all that God has made, to be co-regents, to be responsible to, to build up the natural world uh, that he has given. Take a look at verse 28, and I want to bring to your attention two different lines here. Verse 28 says, God blessed them, and, it said, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And then he said, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, what do these mean? This has been called the cultural mandate that was given by God to humanity as we're responsible for the world that he made. The first one, be fruitful and increase in number, certainly includes having children. But God's not just saying here, have bigger families. It's not just that. It's also develop the social world. Speak into other people's lives. Be fruitful with what God has given you such that other people are blessed by what you do each day. Build up the social world. Build up 
civilization and cities. All of that is to be fruitful and to multiply. Then he goes on to say, fill the earth and subdue it. I believe what's meant there is God made all the stuff in the world, and our job is to harness, not to dominate, but to harness what he has made for the good of other people and for the good of generations to come. And so we might dig into the world and get clay, and you get to be an artist with clay. That's operating the image and the likeness of God in you. You get to take that clay and put together bricks, and out of those bricks you get to put together walls, and out of those walls you get to put together homes for families to thrive in. You see, whatever you do with your hands, if it's done unto the Lord, can be considered ministry because it's part of our original design and we get to represent God as we do that. Remember years ago, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine who was a software engineer, and I asked him, how do you like your job? And he said, oh, it's fine. I don't really care about it much, but it puts food on the table. So, well, that's good that you get to put food on the table through this. But do you realize, though, that what you're doing when you harness silicon, which God has made, is you are enabling people to be more connected with each other, enabling people to be more efficient in their work as they get to make, create, as they get to make computers. You are operating the image of God as he invites you to harness the physical world that he has made. Does that make sense? It's our job to steward all that God has made. Now, let me just pause here for a second. Did God make good stuff or bad stuff? Good stuff, right? If someone gives you something good, what do you do with it? Do you trash it or do you take care of it? Let me hear. You take care of it, right? Did God make good stuff or bad stuff? So what do we do with it? We take care of it, okay? Our job is to harness and to steward the good stuff that God has made, to, to take petroleum out of it, to take clay and iron ore and all of that out of it, to do all the different kinds of jobs now that we can do and represent God as we work, but not to dominate it. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. And if you do that, my friends, whatever job God has given you, you can do for the honor and glory of God this week. There might be a few exceptions, but almost any creative endeavor that God gives you to do, you can do for his honor and for his glory as you represent him in the world as he's given us this responsibility to be his co-creators. It's such a blessing because it prevents this false idea that Adrian's up here doing ministry and I'm out in the world just providing for my family. Yes, you're providing for your family. That's a beautiful thing. But you're also fulfilling this cultural mandate that's given to humanity when he gave us something to do at the very beginning. God be praised. Finally, the image of God stresses our need for loving community and for loving kindness. I, I would guess there are people in a room this size that are so isolated from loving community that you feel like you're not able to thrive right now. Is that true? There might be people in this room right now who feel like they, they can't blossom into what God has given them because they're so isolated from community. And I want to tell you, if you're in that place right now, it's not because you're weak. It's because you need community. And because God has made you, God has made me to need community. 
as much as we need food or water, we need loving relationships. And I'm not exaggerating by that. You think about God creating the first man, and that first man has the most pristine, delicious, most enjoyable food. He's got a beautiful creation all around him. He's got meaningful work to do. But was it enough? It wasn't enough. God looks at him and he says, it's not good for a man to be alone. Let me make a suitable helper, a suitable partner for him, that he will have fellowship with her. God made us this way from the very beginning for no other reason than because we are made in his image. Let me explain. We're made in the image of the triune God. And God is one God and three persons. From before he created anything, God himself was in relationship with himself. Okay, let, let me say it again. One God, three persons. You say it with me. One God, three persons. One what, three who's. Say it with me. One what, three who's. We're doing some training here on the Trinity, okay? Now, you, you might ask someone to define, to explain the Trinity for you. And they might give you a number of different analogies none of which actually explain perfectly that which I cannot completely comprehend with my own mind. How God can be one and three at the same time. And if you think that you can fully comprehend it, I think you probably are wrong. And if someone tells you they can completely comprehend it, I think they're probably lying. But we apprehend it. We pull it off the pages of Scripture because it's all over the pages of Scripture. And then we submit to even what we do not understand. And I, for one, the older I get, am okay with there being some mystery to my faith. Because there's a beauty in this teaching. That it's one God, but somehow, amazingly, the Father is in union, in communion with the Son, and the Son with the Spirit, and the Spirit with the Father. And it's been that way from all eternity. And they said they want to bring seven billion others into that community, so he speaks and he says, you all come into my family as well. I want to interact with you as well. And so you're not weak. You're not weak if you feel like you're in a place of brokenness right now. And you're longing for restoration. It's not weak to need other people. You've been made to need other people. You see, the Western mentality that we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and always be independent, that's just not how we're made. And so we'll always be fighting against ourselves if we try to do that. Instead, we submit to the way God made us when we say, I have to get into community. That's why it's so, such a big deal that next week is one of two or three times a year that we do a life group and care ministry Sunday. We have all kinds of wonderful care ministries for people who have been divorced, for blended families, for people going through grief, all different kinds of life groups and men's groups. Women's groups, men's forge, you got to get in one with people that you know you can be safe with, that will not judge you, you can pray together, and you can pursue Christ together. It's not weak to need that. It's the way we're made. You know, I did two funerals last week. It, it was a hard week. I buried a close, close friend. In the two funerals, you know who showed up? 
family, and life groups. There are other people too, but this was a commonality across the two funerals. That when you get into a great community, people get to know you at a heart level. And they say, I'm going to be for that person in thick and thin. I'm going to be a part of helping restore them when they're brokenhearted. We need this because God made us this way. The image of God stresses our need for a loving community and it stresses our need for loving kindness. As I close this morning, I'd like to just share just a little bit of my heart, if that's okay. I have just a deep, deep burden that we lead the way as Christians in honoring people, in demonstrating loving kindness toward people, even that we don't like. Somehow we've lost this in our culture. I'm not sure if it's the radio personalities, the TV personalities, all the celebrity culture. I don't know what it is, but I... I turn left and right. I'm not specifically talking about Carney E. Free, but I hear people who name Christ on a regular basis insulting other people. And I just have to, from time to time, pause and do inventory in my soul and say, Lord, how am I thinking about other people that are made in your image and your likeness? Am I honoring them with the dignity that you have placed in them? Here would be a, a few difficult but per perhaps good questions to ask yourself in this regard. If you're a Democrat, you might ask your Republican friends, how do I do when we start talking about politics? And just listen. If you're a Republican, you might ask some of your Democrat friends, how do I do when we start talking about politics? And just listen. And guess what? We have both in this room, and I give thanks to God for that. If, if you have some Conflict in your family. Might, might we need to ask from time to time our family, how do I do when we seem to disagree? Do you know that I love you even when I disagree with your position? Would you just tell me that honestly? I, I, want, I want to hear from you. I don't want to defend myself. I just want to hear from you. Or we might even go through our social media posts. And I know I'm hitting close to home here. We might go through our social media posts and say, Am I saying things that I would later regret about other people, about superstars that I've never met, about politicians? Am I saying things that I later regret? Because the truth is, we all can look at other people and find something that is negative in them, can't we? But we also can all look at other people and find something that's good in them. And a hallmark of Christianity across all of the years, across all of the centuries, has been looking at other people that we may differ from and say, how can I find something beautiful in this person and find a way to encourage them because I'm either going to point them toward Christ or away from Christ. Which one am I going to be about? Which one are you going to be about? It was Jesus who said, we love our enemies. We pray for those who would persecute us. We are different than the rest of this world. And I pray you're with me in this because it's so critical. If we're not going to lose the next generation, we got to be different because the next generation doesn't give two red pennies about what you say unless they are positive that you care. They'll ditch whatever you say 
unless they are certain that you care about them, even when you disagree. Listen again to how the half-brother of Jesus put it here in James 3, 9, and 10. This is so, so powerful. In fact, would you read this out loud with me? It's so powerful. It's so important for us. Please join me. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Isn't that great? There's the half-brother of Jesus saying, oh, we can't do this for one person that we love, praise them, and then the person we dislike, curse them. How could that come from two ends of the same mouth? Brothers and sisters, this should not be. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship in heaven, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures and arts and civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to our lives as a gnat. But it's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Because our God has created seven billion in his image and likeness, and he wants every one. But what's our example in this? How do we live up to this? We look at Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him was betrayed by his own was handed over to the Roman governor, was nailed upon a tree, had the skin ripped off his back, stripped naked, mocked and spat at, heaving from a blood-stained cross, while a few soldiers threw dice for his clothes. And what'd he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, I'm dying for them too. Would you pray for me? Would you pray with me? Father, I confess to you that it's a big deal that I have to look at myself in the mirror and see it is with the same mouth that I bless some people and say things that I would regret about other people. Father, I am truly sorry and I repent. 
maybe you'd have to say the same thing. Maybe there's a group of people that you have in mind right now that you really don't like. Maybe there's an individual that you have in your mind right now that you do not speak well of. And you just do business with God right now. And you say, God, I'm sorry for the things that I've said and even the ways that I've mistreated those who differ from me. Please forgive me and please help me to be different. Father, we confess that this world has a way of getting into us. And as it does, we end up missing the beauty that we see in people all around us. And we end up missing so many opportunities to encourage the brokenhearted. end up missing so many opportunities to be representatives of Christ to a watching world. And I know I'm not alone here at Carney E. Free in saying that we want to be different. So God, would you give us help? Would you give us help where we are weak? Would you help us to look into the blood-drenched face of Jesus? receive his grace and to live with grace this week. We love you, Lord. We give ourselves to you through the power of Christ. We believe this can be so. May it be even this week. And God's people say,